I don't know about you guys, um, I feel so much more comfortable without um, khakis and a jacket on. <laughs> I feel like I'm at home. I, I was tempted to come in my pajamas this morning, but I thought that might be a little too comfortable. Um, I guess I'm just, the good Lord didn't construct me for high church, which is nothing wrong with high church, just not what he made me for. Anyways, I digress. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Daniel chapter 2. We started, we spent two weeks in the book of Daniel before Easter, and we took a break during Easter. If you don't have a Bible in those back pews, we got a couple extra Bibles. If, if, if you'd like to borrow one, if you don't have a Bible and you want a Bible, we got one covered for you, so go ahead and grab one. But, um, but Daniel's in the Old Testament. It's towards, towards the back there, um, right before what we get to what we call the minor prophets. It's the last of the major prophets, if you will. And Daniel, if you remember, is a pretty familiar character for most of us. I mean, we've all probably heard the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Uh, most of us have probably heard the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were thrown in the fiery furnace. So there's a lot of these components, stories that we were taught maybe when we were little kids by mom and dad, by grandma and grandpa, maybe going to church and Sunday school or whatever. Um, and so in the midst of all these familiar stories, we also get these sprinklings of, of maybe some stories that we, that we maybe never heard before. Maybe there's some stories that are uh, maybe not quite remembered as well. Uh, we get a sprinkling of prophecy. There's a lot of prophecy. In fact, um, a lot of biblical scholars will tell you that the key to unlocking revelation is the book of Daniel. And so, um, so, so today we, we start a little bit with this idea of dreams. Um, I was thinking this week um, about anxiety. As we read this passage here shortly, you're going to see that anxiety um, is what kind of grips is one of the key players to this. Um, I, I read earlier, I saw some statistics earlier that said that um, 63% of North Americans um, use prescription medications on a daily basis. It's a lot. Um, 43%, they say 43% of, of North Americans, that includes United States and Canada, 43% use um, medications that alter moods. Um, they, they say approximately 18% of adults 18 and over, about 40 million, struggle with anxiety disorder in the United States alone. I think one of the things that we could probably all agree on, now maybe we don't have uh, a prescribed anxiety disorder, maybe we're not on a medication to alter our moods, but if we're all being honest, I think we can all think of times in our lives where we were anxious over something or someone. Um, Something, maybe it's your job, maybe it's your vocation, maybe it's um, going through school, maybe you have a big test coming up, get anxious. Maybe there's a meeting that you gotta, you gotta either lead the meeting or you have a, a, a big role in the meeting and you've been preparing for this situation, uh, you've been preparing for this presentation, and anxiety begins to grip you. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you found that special someone and your heart flitters a little bit. You feel the butterflies as soon as they walk in the room. 
and you just hope that they feel the same way towards you. I'm not going to look at anybody in the eyes. I just know as a pastor slash youth pastor that I'm always told of budding relationships, and it's springtime, and they're in full bloom. But we know that relationships can create anxiety, right? Um, Maybe it's not the beginning of a new relationship. Maybe it's in your marriage. Um, Believe it or not, disagreements occur. And if you don't believe it, um, you can ask my wife. And she has a whole list of areas that I disagree with her and where I'm wrong and she's right. And she's probably pretty right. (laughs) Um, As parents, um, how, how many sleepless nights do we wrestle with over concerns for our children? Where we can spend so much time and energy doing the best that we can, trying to guide them in the way they should go, but at the end of the day, they have to make those decisions, don't they? And, and one of the most difficult things that we as parents have to do is begin to let go. And you hope and you pray that they make the right decision. See, I think anxiety is something that we all wrestle with, young and old, and we will continue to wrestle with. It doesn't matter um, how old you are, it doesn't matter how young you are, it doesn't matter how rich you are, it doesn't matter how poor you are, it doesn't matter the color of your skin, we are all going to wrestle with anxiety. And we see this played out today by a king, arguably the most powerful human king to walk the earth in Nebuchadnezzar. And so that tells me if a man this powerful a man who, who at this time was in control of most of the known world, the man who had all the riches in the world, had all the luxury in the world, that if he wrestled with anxiety, then more than likely a common guy like me is going to do the same. Sometimes we find that somebody else's anxiety creates anxiety in our own lives. And we're going to see that played out. So what we're going to do is we're going to read Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And after that, we'll go ahead and pray. So Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians... The enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be be laid in ruins. For if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time, and he said, "Let 
or the second time it said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall show you and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magicians or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to be killed them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you again this morning for just an opportunity to come and to worship you. Lord, I thank you for the words of the song that we just sang, forever. How we can forever glorify you. We, we celebrated last week, Easter Sunday, that Sunday that represents that day in which you conquered death, which the stone was rolled away. Lord, the exciting thing is we don't have to wait till next Easter to celebrate a risen Savior. Lord, for us, for, for, for the believers, we get to celebrate Easter every single day. To think about having a Savior who came, who left heaven in all of its glory and all of its riches that came to earth to die on a cross for us. And then with great power and authority conquered death. Help us to cling to that Savior this morning as we look at this story about a king, his counsel, his wise men, and Daniel. And see how they responded to anxiety. Lord, I know this morning there are people here, most of us, if we're honest, that have been wrestling, that are wrestling, or will soon be wrestling with something. May the words that are said today bring honor and glory to you. May the words that we talk about, may your word bring comfort to those who are struggling. And we see souls saved and lives changed for your honor, for your glory. In your son's beautiful, precious, and holy name we pray. Amen. So the story starts off, and we see here um, in the very beginning of verse 1, it says, In the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, um, there's a little bit of um, misunderstanding. And, and, and sometimes when you read the scripture, there are, there are those who want to discredit the Bible. And this is one of the areas that they'll go to to discredit the scriptures because it talks about this um, 
second year or second year in the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, earlier in chapter one, when we talked about Daniel, it talked about how Daniel and his buddies, they went through three years of training, correct? You guys remember that? Remember was last week or two weeks ago, we talked about they were, they were set aside, they were conquered, they had to go through three years of training, and it was in that training that one of the things that they had to do besides get new names, uh, be, be, be brought into this new culture, they were supposed to eat a new diet, a new food. Remember, Daniel rejected the food, and Daniel and his buddies made a deal with the, the, the chief priest there, and then ultimately with King Nebuchadnezzar, that they would eat this special diet, vegetables. It would be broccoli and water. Horrific. Awful. But it worked for them. Okay? And so they were going to eat this diet for three years. And, and at the end of those three years, they stood before King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar himself, as he began to, to, to look at them, look over them, as he began to ask them questions and compare them, he found that those four guys were ten times better all of his wise men. Not just even the new recruits, not even just the ones that went through their class. Like they were 10 times greater and wiser than all these people. So that happened, that was three years, that was over three years. And all of a sudden, this is talking about in the second year. As we read the scripture, we realize that Daniel and his, his friends are out of their training. But what happened? How did this occur? Um, the way that the Babylonians would reckon their records was that the first year of a king's reign wouldn't begin until after year one had completed. It's confusing. I don't know why. I think sometimes the ancient cultures just had to confuse us today. And so technically, as we read this, this occurs basically three years after King Nebuchadnezzar had taken kingship. And Daniel and his buddies had just recently graduated from the class, and, and they're not present when this occurs. And so King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, a, a dream that creates this great anxiety, enough to where he begins to lose sleep. If we think through this, here we have Nebuchadnezzar, who's still fairly young. He's, he's, he's fairly young in his reign. He's reigning the most powerful empire in, in human history. And certainly there's these times where he begins to wrestle with this idea of how long will this empire last? How long will I last as the king? Am I making the right decisions? William Shakespeare made the statement. He said, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. I don't know if we've sat in those positions before where we think of these Amazing um, occupations. Maybe some of us can sit and make really good armchair presidents where we can dissect every decision that's made and make a statement, well, if I were the president, I would do X, Y, and Z. Um, I, I, love, I love sports. Um, I, I've told you guys before, I, I have been in Tallahassee now for I guess about 12 years, I have grown to become a Seminole fan. Now, it's not my love still. I'm not going to lie. I, as your pastor, I cannot lie to you. I will probably forever bleed maize and blue. Um, but I, I have somewhat of a new perspective. I was, this past Easter, I was talking with Coach Kelly, 
And I was telling him, you know, um, my perception on some of this has changed uh, because of some relationships that I have now. And, and for those of us who are passionate sports fans, how often do we sit in front of a TV and start yelling at the TV because of a play that was called or not called? And, and if I was the coach, I would have crafted a much better play. And if I was in charge, they would win. And I'm here to tell you, like, if I was the coach, like, FSU would be, like, awful. <laughs> they wouldn't win a game. We would be destroyed. But, but so often, don't we, we, we can play like we know better. Like, how easy that position must be, really with all of its glory, with all this limelight, with, with all the, the benefits that come with it. But the reality is when you attain that, there's a lot more than just those benefits that come with it, right? There's other pressures. There's stresses. And Nebuchadnezzar, I believe at this time, he, he's fairly new in this reign, and he's beginning to wrestle with some of these pressures. And he has this dream, and, and it's wrecking him. It's interesting because most of the time in the Old Testament, when God had a message that he wanted to deliver to the Gentiles, he would use one of his prophets. If you remember the book that we studied before Daniel was, was Jonah. Remember, he had a message that he wanted to send to Nineveh to repent. He didn't just give them all dreams. He sent Jonah, the prophet. Amos, one of the other minor prophets, was sent to deliver a message. But on occasion, God would use dreams. If you go back into the beginning of the Old Testament, remember the story of Joseph. Remember Pharaoh. Pharaoh kept getting these dreams. It was dreams that God gave Pharaoh that ultimately Joseph would interpret. Uh, in the New Testament, when we talk about the story of, of Jesus coming and his birth, you know, Christmas. Remember, the wise men would travel from the east, and they would come there. They had a dream. The wise men were Gentiles. God used a dream to deliver information to them. And here in this particular passage in, in, in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is given a dream by the Lord, and he's wrestling with it. And so he calls in his advisors, his, his inner circle, these, these, as the Bible talks about, these enchanters, these magicians, these Chaldeans, these groups that were supposed to come, that they were supposed to be the cream of the crop. They were the one, like their job was to come and read these dreams. And so as he's being tormented, he calls these guys in and talks with them. It's interesting um, in, in Scripture as we take a side note, just for some, some background, if you will. Starting in um, verse 4, you see that, and then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic. In Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 4, going through Daniel chapter 7, I believe through the end of that chapter, the original text is written in Aramaic. That's the only place in all of the scripture that it's recorded in Aramaic, in that language. Prior to this, it's written in Hebrew, and then afterwards it will be written in Hebrew. And the New Testament is written in Greek. 
But this particular section is written in Aramaic, the, the tongue of the Babylonians. So he calls these guys in and he says, guys, I'm having this dream. Um, I want you to tell me what the dream is and then what it means. Now, first, at first glance, we think, well, that's unfair for the king to say that. But if we really think about this, like, that's their job. That's what they're paid to do. And so the, the king says that, and he says, listen, if, if you guys don't tell me what my dream is, and if you can't interpret it, then um, I'm going to kill you all. <laughs> Some of your translations will talk about cutting them into pieces, um, and the ESV here talks about, um, you shall be torn from limb to limb. A nice comforting prodding. Where it says, like, you guys, like, if you can't do what, you're, what you say you can do, um, we're going to tear you up. We're going to kill you. Um, and then um, we're going to take your homes and we're going to basically turn them into garbage dumps. That's pretty stiff, isn't it? So we can see like this anxiety has gripped the, the, the heart and the soul and the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar. And what he does is he decides to create some anxiety on his counselors. The, the counselors begin with this whole um, spiel about, this, about flattering, about, about being all these good things about how great the king is and all that jazz. And the response is, um, just tell us what the dream is, and then we'll interpret it. So that would be the easy thing. If, if they know what it is, and they can just make something up. They can say whatever they think it is. There's a couple ideas behind this with Nebuchadnezzar. Some think that maybe Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten the dream. How many of you guys have, have had that where you, like, you, you go to sleep and then you wake up and you know you had like a tough dream, but you, you have pieces of that dream, but you just can't put it all together. Like There's a few little things, but you've lost a lot of the main component of that dream. Have you guys ever done that before? Like You know you had a dream. You can think of parts of it, but I can't remember all of it. Some think, well, maybe that's what, what he's talking about. Maybe he, he feels like he's lost part of the dream, and so he needs them to come and kind of tell him what the dream was and then explain to him what it means. The other side of that, and part of what I subscribe to is this, that, that Nebuchadnezzar knew what the dream was. And I believe it is for a couple of reasons. One, I think that if the Lord gave him a dream to deliver information to him, if that's what the vehicle that God was going to use, and I believe that God would give him the ability to recall what the dream is. Um, it doesn't make any sense to me that God would use a dream, but then make it all fuzzy to where you can't remember what the dream is. I think also, I think this was an opportunity for Daniel to, or not Daniel, for, for Nebuchadnezzar to check his counsel. All these guys that are in this room that are gathered with him, they're all um, people that he inherited from his own dad. His, they were his dad's counselors. And so now it's this opportunity. I'm going to test how good these guys really are. So here's your test. I had a dream. Tell me what it was and what it means. And if you can't, you're dead. 
And so, again, they come back to him. And um, I find it interesting what they say. In verse 10, after they said it first, they're like, come on, king, just tell us what the dream is. You tell us what the dream is. We'll tell you what it means. And the king's response, I think, is pretty cool. He says, I know with certainty what you are trying to gain. Because you see that the word that the word for me is firm. So you know exactly, I'm not backing down. You know, I'm, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to stall, okay? If you do not make the dream known to me, there's but one sentence. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till times change. So what he's saying is, listen, I know you're trying to buy time. You're just going to feed me some information. You're going to tease me with something, and you're going to wait to see what happens. And then once things happen, then you'll say, this is what it means. Your dream meant, th- your dream meant this. And he says, listen, no, I'm not waiting. Tell me what it means. And their response, these counselors respond in verse 10. They say, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. Verse 10, I think, is very, very interesting. Maybe you might want to underline it. It says this, The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. And so, these magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, all this stuff that they've been telling, all these things that they've been preaching, when push comes to shove, when their backs are against the corner, as we read verse 10 and verse 11, we see that they don't truly believe the gods that they claim to be serving. See, they realize that their gods, they don't have those powers. They don't have those abilities. They don't dwell with them. And there's this great sense of anxiety now within them, the, this Fear begins to grip their hearts because they know if they can't buy time, if they can't get the king to tell them what the dream was, then they have no way of interpreting it. They have no way of answering it. It's unfair. How often have we used that term when we become anxious over something? It's unfair. The conditions are unfair. Like, it shouldn't be this way. Like, I I should be getting that position because I'm more qualified. Or, or, Or my kids should not be doing this because I've taught them differently. My, my relationship with my spouse should be different because we pray, I go to church, I read my Bible. It should be different. It's not fair. And that's exactly where these wise men find themselves. It's not fair. Like, the parameters that we're supposed to work in, it's not fair. Nobody else, no one, the king, no king has ever asked anybody to do this. It's not fair. It doesn't make sense. But he doesn't back down. And they can't give an answer. And so the king, Nebuchadnezzar, makes a decree, makes an edict. And he says, kill them all. Like every 
counselor, every wise man that we have. Kill them all. I mean, that includes those who are in the room when he gives them the opportunity to interpret the dream. That includes all those who had just graduated, who, who were young, were, were, were naive to what was going on. That includes probably the ones that were held captive now, that were just captured, who were probably in training now. It included all of them. And Nebuchadnezzar says, kill them all. And I find this so cool. Because this, this man, this chief of the guards, the, the head executioner, Ariok, begins to go and get all of the guys together. And he comes and he finds Daniel. Again, a young Daniel, who at this time is, is probably somewhere between the age of 15 and, and probably not any older than 20 max. And he comes and he grabs Daniel. And he tells Daniel what's going down. Verse 13, let me reread this. It says, So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Verse 14, Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. Verse 15, He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. This young Daniel, can you imagine this? Daniel at home, all of a sudden a knock on the door, and it probably wasn't a pleasant, is anybody at home? The guards are all out there. Daniel opens the door and, and hey, Ariak, what's up? We're going to take you, we're going to kill you and all the rest of the wise men. We're going to tear you limb to limb. And Nebuchadnezzar says, this house that you're living in is supposed to become a, a garbage dump. Um, Daniel's a kid of faith. And we determined that two weeks ago. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8 says, And Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile God. I mean, that is passion. Like he said, okay, God, I am all in. Every ounce of me is in. I'm following you no matter what. And we see the blessing at the end of that chapter. We see how, how, how awesome it all works out that, that we have this, this that God used him and, and God even though they were on this vegetarian diet, that, that they became stronger mentally, physically, emotionally. They were ten times greater than all the rest. So God blessed them. And we turn the page to chapter 2, and we see that, that that amazing blessing looks like it's about to end. Like he's a new graduate, like he's just beginning. I mean, he's, he's not even to the point where he's been invited to the big meetings yet. 
Like, he, if anybody has a right to say it's unfair, he, he should be the one that says, this isn't fair. Like, I wasn't even there. I didn't even have a chance to interpret it. There are times in life where I wonder, I, I sit and think about what life would be like going through it without having the hope of a Savior. You know, one of those times where it becomes um, most pressing in my mind is when you deal with death. Like, how hard is it to go through death when, when you don't have a, a Savior like Jesus that can lean on, that you can fall in the lap of, that you can, that you can hold, that you can work through? Like, how, how, how depressing and how, how hard it must be. But, you know, so often in our own lives, when it comes to those anxious moments, whatever they are, when reality strikes, when we look in the mirror, for many of us, our response can be very can be a little different between those who believe in God and those who don't believe in God. Like we can get upset, we can get mad, we can start yelling, we can, we, we can, we can show bad tempers. Colossians chapter 4 verse 5 through 6 says this, walk in wisdom towards outsiders making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let me read that again. Colossians 4, chapter, five, or chapter 4, verses 5 through 6 says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each person. We read scripture like that and we think like in these nice scenarios like that's easy. But when someone's coming to knock on your door to drag you, to kill you for something you weren't even involved with, yet Daniel lives out that those verses. Those guys show up and in great calmness. Daniel just it says right there, I love it, verse 14 says, Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion, with calmness and wisdom. Young Daniel, probably looking at a horde of soldiers, just says to Ariok, Um, why is the decree of the king so urgent? What, what's, what's the rush? Can, can you, can, let me have a chance to sit and talk with the king. This part of the chapter reads much like chapter one, when God had allowed Daniel to, to build this relationship with the chief eunuch. And remember, it was the chief eunuch's responsibility to train all these guys. Like, it was his job. And if they failed, the buck stopped with him. If there was a problem, if there was an issue, he would be the one that would be dealt with. 
That's why when we said that whole thing about the diet, like he, he took a great leap to be able to allow Daniel, even Daniel and his three buddies, to go 10 days. Because if, if they showed up scrawny, if they showed up like lesser than everybody else, it was his neck on the line. And here in chapter 2, there's this same similar, at least, situation. See, I believe in this time and over the course of these three years that, that Daniel had the opportunity and his buddies had the opportunity to rub shoulders with, with, with these guards, with, with those in the king's castle, those in the community. And over that time, like, they had built this trust factor. They, they had been able to show these people that, that what they believed was true. And, and when they were confronted with things, they were always spoke like it says in, in Colossians chapter um, 4, verse 5 and 6, that they always spoke with graciousness. Didn't mean they were weak. Didn't mean that they were just pushovers because they were seasoned with salt. I mean, they, stand, they stood firm in the truth, but they did it with a gracious tongue. They had built a relationship. They had built trust with these guys. And so Ariok shows up, and he's... Daniel just says, hey, I don't understand why the rush. Can you just give me an opportunity to talk with the king? Again, Ariok's neck is on the line. Like if something goes wrong, if something goes bad, the next person, after all the wise men are taken care of, Nebuchadnezzar is going to look at Ariok and say, Get rid of him. Take care of him. The faith of Daniel created this calmness within him. Psalms 37 verse 5 says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. And he will act. So often the case when it comes to anxiety is this. We as humans, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. We're control freaks, aren't we? We're control freaks. Like we want to be able to control the situation. Like I can remain calm as long as I'm the one in charge, as long as I can construct the parameters, as long as I can accomplish the task. Like, it's okay. I, I, can, I can be calm in that. But when we lose the ability to control the situation, anxiety seeps in. Daniel chapter 1, we mentioned this before, verse 8 says that Daniel purposed in his heart, like he committed with great passion. He committed to the Lord then. Daniel 1 verse 8 and we see going forward, we see going throughout the book of Daniel that it was not just words. It wasn't just something that he memorized. It wasn't just something that he said. It wasn't this perfect situation. Now he said it. He believed it. He lived it. And I love that tag on with Psalm 37 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. So often, I think, in lives, those moments of anxiety 
That if we allow God, if we just let go, as, as difficult as it is, as hard as it may be, if we just let go, if we quit trying to change the situation, if we quit trying to tug the situation, if we just committed to the Lord, if we just committed to Jesus and allow him to act, I wonder how different the situation might be. And that's what Daniel does. I mean, this is a huge deal. We never see an argumentative Daniel. We don't see him yelling at anybody. We don't see him fighting it with anybody. He just calmly says, let me talk to the king. I love Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, one of my favorite verses, verses that I memorized when I was a teenager. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. Folks, there will be anxious moments in life. If Nebuchadnezzar, this great king, had them, then we are certain to follow suit. This particular passage that we saw we saw three different people or types of people and how they responded to anxiety. Nebuchadnezzar got mad, got upset. He was, he was losing sleep. He was worried. And so he brings other people in the situation, his counselors. And then this far-from-routine meeting occurs when all of a sudden the king gives this edict, like, listen, you can't tell me what it means. You're dead. Their life's in the line. And from there, these men become very anxious, very fearful. This idea, these thoughts of it's not fair, all this stuff, that was their response. And then we have Daniel, who despite being in the same situation as the rest of those wise men, in fact, even maybe probably more difficult because he wasn't even part of the meeting. Remains calm. And the reason he was able to remain calm in the situation was, I believe, going back to Daniel chapter 1, he purposed in his heart. He committed his way to the Lord. He was faithful to God. And although he did not understand it, he didn't realize, he didn't know what the outcome would be, he knew that God was in control. How are we going to wrestle with our anxiety? How are we going to respond? What are we going to do as we faced it time and time and time and time again? This morning, I, we have almost every season of life represented here. We have some young, especially downstairs, some really young. We have some mature that are here. We have those who are married. We have those who are not married. I have the belief that if we were all to sit together, we would have some real heart-to-heart -heart conversations in life. We'd find that that's one of those great things that brings us together. That's one of those same things that, that puts us all on a, on a level playing field. Life's not easy. It's hard. And there are anxious moments. My hope, my prayer for us, for me, 
is that as we enter those anxious moments, those anxious situations, those anxious relationships, that we commit to the Lord. We purpose in our heart far before those moments that we're going to stay true to Him. And as those moments arrive, we can say like Hebrews 13.6 says, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Lord, this morning, I pray that as we finish up, as we contemplate the words here, the story from Daniel, God, I know that we are anxious. I I know I struggle with it. I battle with it. Life's not easy. It never will be. You never promise it to be easy. And I know, God, that I'm a control freak. But Lord, this morning, I pray that we as a faith family grab a hold of Psalm 37.5, that we commit our way to you, that we trust in you completely and allow you to act in these situations and the situations to come. It's in your son's beautiful and precious and holy name we pray. Amen.